0: You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Before we begin, I just want to say um, I'm really honored to have this opportunity to share the Word of God with you all. As I look out in the, the service here, I see a lot of faces and families, people who love uh, me and my family, uh, my church family, I'm really thankful for the way that you guys speak God's word into my life and my family's life, the way you guys have met needs for Allie and I, and um, just worshiping with you all on a week-in, week-out basis. It's so great to be with you here on uh, New Year's Eve and to celebrate this with you by opening God's word and looking ahead. And uh, this is a cool opportunity for me because we're kind of in between sermon series right now. We finished Advent last week, and we start John next week back up. And so they asked me if I would just share from a passage that the Lord had burdened me um, for you all um, this morning. And uh, One thing that the Lord has been teaching me is, uh, is just how central the gospel has to be for our lives. And that one passage that I think really says that well is this Colossians two twenty through three four passage. So if you would turn there with me, that'd be great. If you open your Bibles and turn there, um, if you come to Christ's covenant often, you might think, "Wow, shocker! We're we're talking about the gospel again this morning. Wow, that's really unique. That's really cool, Jake. But that you know, I don't, I don't think that uniqueness is necessarily. Uh, the thing that I want to bring, I want to bring sameness actually um, to, the, to what we normally talk about and how we open God's Word. Um, Mark officiated, Allie and I, and Allie in my wedding. And uh, when we were getting ready, he was talking about all the different things we would do. And we had a few suggestions. We're like, okay, at some point during the ceremony, we want to step aside and we'll have a foot washing and then we'll take communion. And then we will do the unity sands and light the unity candle. And then we'll braid the unity cord. And then we'll recite our unique vows to one another in song. Um, No, we did suggest a few of those unique things. Not all of them. Ali made sure I clarified that that's not true. That we didn't, we weren't that over the top. But Mark stopped us as we were suggesting that. And he said, you know, let let me offer a suggestion. The, what makes a wedding significant isn't how unique it is, it's how similar it is. Right? Because God instituted marriage in the beginning, and since then, couples have been getting married, and they have all, that, that's supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. And so by being similar, you're actually putting that picture forward better than by being unique. That it's the same thing that's been happening throughout time, and I thought, yeah, that's really cool. And then as we were speaking, I forget even which Sunday it was, I think it was sometime this summer, uh, the Lord really laid on my heart how awesome it is that every Sunday we're here, we hear the gospel. That's really something we should give thanks for, because just like in a wedding, it's the, the Word of God is all about one thing. It's about what Christ has done. It all points back to that in every page, what makes every page of the Word of God special isn't about how unique each page is, how unique each chapter and book is, but how similar it is. How it all points back to the same message of what Jesus has done for us. So, it's my hope that as we focus on this next coming year, that we would set our minds on Christ. So if you would join me in Colossians 2.20, uh, I'm going to read to verse 23 and then take a little pause. It says, if with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, and he's talking about these false teachers that have come in. See, he came and he shared the gospel there and he told them the truth of Christ and many believed and a church formed. And then he left and more teachers came in and they had false ideas about, okay, so Paul said, this is how you start. Now we're going to tell you how to continue. These are all the things you need to do to continue as a mature Christian Talk about the elemental spirits of the world. That's a common theme in the book of, of Colossians. You can think of that as like supernatural powers. They were, they were thinking about like controlling and preventing demons and seeing visions of angels and all of those things. It's like, okay, if you're a Christian, you're growing in your maturity, you need to be doing that. Talked about regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used. I'm not exactly sure what those things were that they weren't supposed to taste, touch, or handle, but they were having these regulations so that they would be mature as Christians. This is how you continue to grow. This is how you avoid sin. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That was even probably a common saying in their church by these false teachers. Like, remember the good old saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They were also talking about a lot of different, like, like rituals and festivals like Sabbath and the new moon and ritual food laws. And they said, you need to be doing these things to grow as a believer. Paul recognizes why they are attracted to these philosophies, why they've been taken by them. He says these indeed, he he says these do have some use. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom. Like if you do these things, you'll look smart. Like people look and say, wow, man, look at the self-control. That guy, they are, they're wise. They know what's going on. I wouldn't have even thought of that. Uh, promoting self-made religion. You know, if you make up your own religion, you're probably going to make it into something similar to the way you already live, right? You're going to feel pretty good with your own self-made religion. Like, yeah, I'm nailing it. This religion I made, I am the best at it. So you've got the appearance of wisdom, you've got self-made religion, you've got asceticism, looking good, and severity of the body. You know, sometimes like if you've done something wrong, you kind of want to put a regulation or a rule or make yourself suffer a little bit like, oh man, now I'm clean, like I really paid my due there. I, I, now I'm, I'm not going to eat this anymore because I've really messed up too many times, overindulged or something like that. And he says it's good for all of those things. But he says it's no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And as we're going to continue on, we're going to use the word flesh a lot. So I'm going to give a simple definition, and I'll just clarify. This is not an all-encompassing def- definition. This is just a simple way I kind of try to explain what the flesh is. I would say that the flesh is what feels good. And, you know, that's, that means that can be taken a couple different ways. You could say the flesh is what feels good, right, in your indulgence, like lust, or anger, or alcoholism, or something like that. This this indulgence of the flesh is just like an impulse decision. You know, you felt it, where your body's like craving to do something that you know is wrong, and you just want to indulge. That's the flesh. But I'd say that the flesh can be defined in another way, that the flesh could be what feels good, right? The flesh can be what feels, like, superior, like I'm a good person. I'm doing really good right now. Like I have got it together in my life. I can follow all the rules. I'm a good person. That's also the flesh. Because it's building up what makes you feel good. And he says that this is of no use in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And we can see that, right? Because the only thing that can stop you from... Sinning in those ways, the only thing that saves you from sin is Christ, right? We know that. That's really simple. But I think we can relate with them. I think we can relate with these rules and regulations that they submit to. I think we can very much so. I know that I can. Because when I think about sin in my own life, there's, it's, it's a very easy tendency. It's my natural tendency To be like, okay, you know what, I need to stop doing this. I've messed up too many times, so I'm setting this rule. No longer am I going to do this. It's done. Now I can finally feel peace and finality to it because I set this regulation. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm free from that. You know, a lot of us are making New Year's resolutions. I actually don't know how many people make New Year's resolutions anymore. You probably came this morning thinking like, okay, it's New Year's Eve. You're going to hear a New Year's resolution. Sermon or something—that's not primarily my focus this morning. I'm not an expert on the topic, as most pastors are. Um, but you set a New Year's resolution. Let's say you set a diet. Like what, for whatever reason, you've, you're out of shape. You maybe it's you've been, you know, lazy, or you've been um, eating to comfort yourself, or you have lack of self-control, or maybe you are struggling with insecurity due to your weight or something like that. And so you set a really strict diet and you, you're like, all right, January 1, it's done. I'm never eating a donut ever again. I'm free. I'm going to be, oh man, I'm free from all that. Oh, I'm, it's a new me this year. Or maybe you don't have a New Year's resolution. Maybe you have a regulation or a rule in another way. Maybe you regulate the content on your devices with a software. You say, that. Okay, I downloaded this software. Now that's I'm safe. No more, no more sin. Ah, finally free. Or maybe you said, okay, I've got a problem with drinking. I'm done. I'll never even look at a bar anymore. I'm I'm never going in. Free. Or maybe you've got a group of guys that get together and you guys hold each other accountable. You say, Okay, three starts and you're done, you're out of the club. No, I can't mess up now. I can't let the guys down. So I'm done. I'm free. We can relate with the Colossians in setting these rules and regulations, but I want to tell you this morning that while those things may have some use and some good, they do not save you from sin. In fact, they are of no use in prevention of the flesh. The gospel is what saves us from sin, not our own rules and regulations. Not to say that those things are wrong. I would encourage a lot of those things. But they cannot save you from your sin. If you're trusting in those things, if you're saying this is the son, I am done with this sin because I did this, you are making yourself your Savior. And you might be starving this mouth of indulgence on this two-headed beast called the flesh, but you're feeding this mouth of self-righteousness so that you're not actually preventing or fighting your flesh, you're feeding it. It's growing. It's becoming more powerful. I think we can relate with that. And that's why it's so important that week in and week out, that day in, day out, and every moment we're focused on the work of Christ. This is how we find freedom from the indulgence of the flesh. And this is how Paul continues immediately after he says this. He says in verses 1-4 through of chapter 3, it says, If you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Do you notice a a common theme as Paul talks? If you look back in verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, If you died to the elemental if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. In three one he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, and in verse three of chapter three it says, If you have died, and for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So our death and resurrection very much have to do with this setting our mind on Christ and our ability to prevent the indulgence of the flesh this death and resurrection with Christ. How does that happen? Well, I think it's primarily and very simply that we need to remember that when Christ died, see, our sin required death before God. That God is a holy and righteous judge, and in order to free you from your sin, the penalty is death. And either you will pay that, or Christ will pay it for you. Those are the two options. And the only two options. And... We need to be united with Christ in His death and the fact that He needs to bear our sins. He needs to be the one to take them on in order to be free from them. That is our only hope. If He didn't pay for our sins, we do not stand right before God. So, your peace, not only in your past, not only on the first day you believed, but also in the future forever, our only peace before God comes from the fact that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins. So, if you have died with Christ, you have peace before God. Your, bank, your, your balance due in him, to Him is zero. It's, the debt is paid. But not only that, you've also been raised with Him. But I think in this death with Christ, to continue, we have a freedom from sin. If you have died to the world with Christ, that's the only way we can have the power to say no to the indulgence of the flesh. That's what the Scripture says. In every page, and the way we have that power is not through this. Like, okay, I know that, I, and I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Therefore, I'm never going to be tempted again. No, it's not like that. It's like the Spirit of God is in you. The same cry, the same Spirit that allowed Jesus when he was tempted by the devil, devil himself, to say no. That same Spirit is within you, and so you don't have to say no to that anymore. You can be dead to that. So we're dead with Christ, and we're also raised to newness of life. After Christ raised, and he, He's now seated at the right hand of God, He intercedes for us. It says in 2 Corinthians 520, uh, 5.21, He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So no longer does He look on us and see sinners. In fact, He sees the righteousness that Jesus had in our place. Jesus put His righteousness on you, so as you walk in newness of life, God looks at you and sees all the goodness that Jesus did, and you have no hope of looking good before God without that righteousness on you. But not only that, remember we have the Spirit. The same power that led Jesus to obey and to serve God is within you, and we have the power, in depending on that Spirit, to walk in newness of life, to be transformed. And the Scripture actually promises that if you are saved, He is going to transform you. You will see that change. So our death and resurrection with Christ is key to understanding how we can be free from the indulgence of the flesh. But not only that, this idea of having our mind set on things above, it says in verse 1 of chapter 3, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And two, it says, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. And three, it says, your life is hidden with Christ and God. And four, it says, when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. There's this sense that the much greater significance of our life is there and not here. This is even out of proportion to reality, but think of your life as a speck of sand that you pick up off of a beach. And this little grain of sand is the amount of time and our, our earthly existence and the beach's eternity. How significant is this grain of sand in reference to eternity? To the entire beach? It doesn't even matter. The beach, there's no dent even made. That is even more, this grain of sand is even more significant than your life in eternity for the fact that there's no end There is an end to the number of grains of sand on the beach. There is no end to eternity. You will be with Christ forever. You can't compare something that is finite to something that is infinite. So the greater significance of your life and your hope is hidden with Christ and God. He is your life. And when He appears, your true life begins. So our mind and our hope is there. I like to think of it as Let's you say you've got all this, this armload of all the treasures that, that are promised to you in Christ. This eternal life. This presence of God. This being a son and daughter of God in the presence of your Heavenly Father. Seeing Him face to face. And your arms are loaded with these treasures. And you look down at the things of earth and they don't look like treasures anymore. They look like garbage. Which one of these jewels are you going to set down to pick up one of that, those pieces of trash? When your mind is set on things above, you don't have to be set on earthly things. It says... Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. When our mind is focused on the the promises and the hope that we have in Christ, we we have ability to stop the indulgence of our flesh. We have the ability to walk in newness of life. Our death, our resurrection, and our future hope of Christ are key to us in preventing our indulgence of the flesh. And that's how Paul continues on. He says... This is what your life looks like when you're focused on the gospel. This is this is. He gives two different instructions. He says in verse five, "Put to death therefore what is earthly in you," and he lists a number of kinds of sexual immorality and anger and covetousness. What do those things have in common? They're self-seeking things, right? They're this impulsive. I want this and I. I need this to be pleased or to be fulfilled, and I'm going to take this, but we can put to death what is earthly in us, when we have this mindset on things above. In fact, when we do have our mindset on Christ, that's how our life should look. We should be putting those things to death by the power of the Spirit, to deny those things. Not only does he tell us to put to death what's earthly in us, but he says, "Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved." He says, put on on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love. What all those things have to do with one another? They're all the denial of yourself. See, when your mind is set on Christ, and your hope in Him, and your newness of life in Him, you don't have to be self-seeking. You can deny yourself. And it's only by that power. The only... Power that can enable us to live this life of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love is the same one that enabled Christ to go to the cross. That spirit that lives in us, that is the only one that can change us to look like that. A life that's set on, a mind that's set on the things above, a mind that's set on Christ should look like that. Putting to death those earthly things and putting on those other things, those things the self-deprecating things. And that's that is a miracle when life looks like that. That is a miracle of God. Now, I don't know about you, but to simply, if I was simply to say to you, set your mind on things above, that might be a little vague or ambiguous. That might be a little confusing. Where do I go from here? How do I stop this prevention of flesh? What is setting my mind on Christ look like. I think Paul gives a great example of what it looks like. If you, turn, if you look at uh, 3.16, it says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He doesn't say, just say, know the Word of God. He doesn't just say read the Word of God. He doesn't just say hear the Word of God. He doesn't say educate yourself on it. He says let it dwell in you richly. As the Word of God impacts your life and transforms your life, as the Spirit of God transforms your life, it dwells in you richly. And it's not a singular you. It's a corporate you. It's you all. It's us all as a, a church body. This Spirit of God should dwell in Us, ritually. And you can see that from the things that he lists afterwards. It all involves you can't admonish one another if you are alone. You can't teach one another if you are alone. You can't can't sing sing, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together alone. It's this thankfulness to God that we have together, this community of God, is what helps us to set our minds on things above. Because if you think about it, if the Spirit of God is in me, and in you, and in you, and in you, and we're sharing our lives together, the Lord, that's that's a powerful community where your heart is richly dwelling on Christ, and you have, by the power of that Spirit, the, the ability to admonish me and to hold me accountable, to teach me, to point me back to Christ. You know, I am so, so thankful on a Sunday morning when I see somebody overcome with the joy of Christ, like how cool is it that we have uh, a men of men of God that are leading our church and speak on a, on a regular basis that we see weep from the pulpit because they're so moved by what Christ has done, or that feeling you get when you see somebody overjoyed in worship and singing praises to God, and you can just see the joy. Man, that is so good to share that with one another, isn't it? Or in life, as you're meeting with one another and you're, you're working through hard times and you see people who are, have this hope in the future, even when things are really rough right now, or when you have something wrong, you say, you've say you got somebody in your life that says, man, Christ has forgiven you, but He's also empowered you. That, that you can change. That you do have that power. You have that encouragement. See, this is, the, this is the power by which you fight. I do not share you with this, this with you this morning to discourage you from fighting. To s- discourage you from fighting your flesh. I share this with you this morning to give you, uh, to direct you to the power that you have to stop struggling. Not to stop struggling, but to have to prevent the indulgence of the flesh. If you are, are stuck in sin, it's only by setting your mind on Christ that you can do that. And it's and this community is a prime way to do that. And if you have your mindset on the Gospel, and you recognize that these are the people that God has rescued, then there's no option for you not to be involved in this community. Or a community of believers. That's just not an option. The Word of God should dwell richly with us. And then... Paul gives a great example of what that mindset on Christ, what that looks like in practical life. The first relationship that that should affect is in your family. In 18-20 through 20 it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So husbands are to love, wives are to submit, and children are to obey. Love, submission, obedience. What do those things involve? Denial of self. When you put to death the earthly things and you put on, the first place that that should be affecting is your family. You can see it very well that my relationship with my wife is not about what she can give me. It's not about the fulfillment she gives me. It's about how I can love her to demonstrate the love of Christ to her. Because Christ loved me. My, my wife's greatest, greatest significance isn't how romantic I can be to her or how fulfilling I can be to her, how much I can give to her. It's about how she can become less to demonstrate how great Christ is and how He became less. He submitted. He, who is in the very nature God, did not, not, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. She can demonstrate in that relationship to me. And children, obeying your parents is not about your own desires, but honoring God by saying, you know what, God is my Heavenly Father, so as God has given me uh, things that I should obey and obedience to Him, I'm going to obey my parents. I'm going to display that in my life. If your mind is set on the Gospel, it will show in your family. But if your family, if your relationship with family is primarily about you first seeking your own desires and not showing the love of Christ to one another, you don't have a Gospel-centered family. You have a mindset on yourself, not on the things of Christ. Those would be the first two things I would hope that would be affected by our mindset on the things above. Our our relationship with the church and our relationship with our families. And this is where the rubber hits the road really for me because in student ministry, I've been given the honor of being a part of a lot of your families and joining you with you as you disciple your children, um, that's, such a, that's a, such a humbling blessing to be able to come alongside you. And there's this, this scary statistic that every youth minister knows, and it's the fact that there's a huge number of students that leave the church after they graduate high school. And I think, why is that? And there's a lot of different theories on that, but I think the, one of the most Uh, the theories that makes most sense to me is uh, Dr. D.A. Carson does a study on the degeneration of the gospel, on forgetting the gospel in our families. And he says that the first generation believers, and these first generation believers hear the gospel and are profoundly impacted by it. And they celebrate it in their families and they share it with their children and they pass it on. And then you've got the second generation believers after them. And they saw, man, my parents love Jesus and I love Jesus. And they go to church with their families. And they love God, but they aren't as passionate about passing on this gospel to their, fam- their, their families. And then you've got third generation believers who see that their parents go to church and see that their parents do a lot of good things, but don't know the reason why. Because their parents haven't taken the time to, or the intentionality to pass on the gospel or to model the gospel for their children. And then you've got children who, when they leave, they see no reason to continue going to church because they don't know the gospel. I'd say that's probably the most prominent reason why students are leaving the church is that they never knew the gospel to begin with, even though they knew the right answers, even though they did the right things. They didn't know the gospel. If we don't have a mindset on that in our families, why would your kids continue to go to church? I would hope that as we, as, we, as we look towards this new year, we can express the love of Christ in our families, that we can set our hearts and our minds on Christ and demonstrate that in our families, that husbands would love their wives in a way that shows the love of Christ and wives submit to their husband, that shows the meekness and submission of Christ and that... That children can obey their parents in a way that shows our obedience and even Christ's obedience to the will of God. And that these families centered on the gospel would gather together here week in and week out, day in and day out, and celebrate the gospel together. And that's my hope for our church.